0: Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone. This is Gustavo gutierrez Suarez, one of the hosts of New Books in Film, a podcast series of the New Books Network. Today, we are here with Dr. Richard Grusin, Director of the Center for 21st Century Studies and Professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. He is editor of the Non-Human Turn, Anthropocene Feminism and After Extinction, all published by the University of Minnesota Press. And we are also with uh, Dr. Jocelyn sepania Associate Professor of English and Film Studies and Director of the Film Studies Program at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. She is the author of The Optical Vacuum, Spectatorship, and Modernized American Theater Architecture, published by the University of Minnesota Press. Hello, Dr. Grusin, Dr. Welcome to New Books in Film.
1: Thank you. Nice nice to be here, Gustavo.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for being here and talking to us about the book you have recently co-edited, Ends of Cinema, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2020. As, um, as I have already told you, I'm really excited to have this interview in order to offer our audience a close view of Ends of Cinema. But um, before we start to talk about it, could you please tell us a bit about your academic life and the uh, previous work uh, you have been doing, Doctor Rusin, Doctor Arseniakulis,
1: please. Um, I guess I'll go first. So my work—I'm actually trained uh, in American literature and uh, moved into media studies in media theory in the early 1990s. Uh, and so I've been working since then on questions of uh, media and mediation in the change of technologies of mediation from print, or in the case of cinema, celluloid based technologies to more digitally based. And uh, currently I've been, uh, working on a variety of small projects um, and have written a bit on Donald Trump, but don't know if I want to do any more on that. So. <laughs>
2: Great. Dr. Stephanie
0: Yeah. Hi. Thanks again for having us, Gustavo. Um, my background is, uh, in, is primarily in film history, American film history, as, as well as uh, histories and theories of spectatorship. I uh, received my Ph.D. from Northwestern University in Screen Cultures, and uh, since then I've focused on film exhibition uh, as well as uh, kind of grounded histories of spectatorship. Uh, So my first book was about uh, the history of um, American theater architecture and its relationship to spectatorship from uh, the late 1920s up through the 1960s. Um, I just want to note that was uh, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Uh, Right now, my projects are really focused on um, this new book on substances in cinema um, that hopefully will be done in the next year. Uh, That's a history of um, intoxicants and other kinds of substance consumed by spectators um, in conjunction with uh, watching movies. So really, I'm a historian of exhibition, but also of spectatorship um, kind of runs the gamut. I think that uh, Richard and I have very complementary interests that sometimes diverge, and it made for uh, a really great experience uh, as co-editors as well as colleagues.
2: That's fascinating. Um, now, um, how did you get together Um I know you are both professors of the same university, but how did your um, academic profiles uh, manage to get together in order to decide uh, what would be the book entitled Ends of Cinema? As far as I know, uh, in the spring of um, 2018, there was an Ends of Cinema conference sponsored by the Center, of, by the Center for 21st Century Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. So um, could you tell us about the genesis of the process behind the edition of this book,
1: please? I suppose I should probably start there. Um, So it's useful to understand that this book uh, grows out of, as you mentioned, uh, a conference at the C21, Center for 21st Century Studies. And that's... um, conference was one of the series of annual conferences that we had put on every spring. And so that's the first thing to understand. And the um, we have a, an arrangement with University of Minnesota Press to publish the books that get edited as a result of that these conferences. So that was the larger frame. Um, I had uh, come back to the center. I'd been director in the first five years of uh, 2010 to 2015, and returned in the fall of 2017 after a two-year hiatus, and was began thinking immediately about what we wanted to do for a conference for 2018. And the first thing that occurred to me was the fact that 2018 was the 50th anniversary of the founding of the Center for 21st Century Studies, which was founded as the Center for 20th Century Studies in 1968. Uh, so given that, I thought it would be useful to uh, think about a conference that related to the history of the center. And the center was in its, let's say, second, to, second and third decades in particular, um, but almost from the beginning, was instrumental in the development of film studies as a discipline, uh, not only in the U.S., but actually internationally. So in Milwaukee, the center for in Milwaukee is a, let's say, medium-sized city, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, about an hour and a half drive or train ride from Chicago. But what happened in the uh, 80s and 90s in particular, and actually even beginning in the mid-70s, was film theorists and film critics from around the country found themselves drawn to Milwaukee, because of this center and its sort of cutting edge agenda to study the the present and the near the recent past, present, and near future. And so almost every one of the sort of canonical any canonical film critic you could mention or film theorist you could mention probably found their way through Milwaukee and through the center for twentieth century studies. so so knowing that and knowing how important that was in the legacy of the center. I wanted to do something on cinema in the 21st century. And so uh, Jocelyn was the person I approached to uh, coordinate this with me because she was, I mean, interestingly, because she's not a 21st century studies uh, scholar. She's really a historian, although I think in many ways I am as well, but a historian of the present and in some sense of the future. Um, So I approached her with the idea that we would do something perhaps on post-cinema because, as I'm sure you know, that's a term that's begun to be in the last decade or so, um, become more popular, Steve uh, Shaviro's uh, important book, Post-Cinematic Affect, and then a large anthology co-edited by Shane Denson and Julia Leda called Post-Cinema. And so I approached Jocelyn with the idea of doing something on post cinema, and well Jocelyn, maybe you can pick up the story here
0: sure this is it's it's a really fun question because it's really fun to talk about the genesis of this book. I think of this book as um It's really a celebration of collaboration of what can happen when um, a group of uh, intellects come together and think around a topic together. And there's a kind of joy in that that I really love. So I actually love talking about the productive nascence of the conference and then the book because I think it helps us get into that kind of spirit of communal intellectual inquiry. Um, So yeah, Richard came to me about post-cinema. And um, I said, well, what if we shift our thinking a little bit? Because as so many of us in the discipline know, there was all this sort of hubbub, especially around the turn of the century, uh, the 21st century is the one that I'm referring to, um, about how, you know, cinema was ending. And it was this uh, great, you know, disciplinary freak out, like, how do we deal with the fact that the digital is now taking over, and we're not going to have analog film anymore. So this is kind of like, big um, theoretical hubbub for a while that kind of died off and it was sort of tired, right? It became a kind of cliche that cinema had ended. Um, So I said, maybe maybe it's a bit of a like provocateur impulse (laughs) to suggest uh, doing a conference around the multiple ends of cinema, especially in this moment that was dealing with um, the legacy of C21 at 50 years, you know, what it means to look at um, a center that was so invested in the discipline of film studies and how that had transformed over time. So together, we thought that, this idea could actually be a lot of fun. Let's think about what it means to to consider the ends of cinema, the deaths of cinema, um, and what's happened since then. Because it didn't die, right? That didn't happen at all, Um, despite all of the um, hand-wringing. That's not actually what happened. So it's quite fun, I think, to come back to something that had seemed tired and old and overdone, and rethink it, but rethink it as a group working together. Um, so we came up with this, um, with this notion of the ends of cinema, not the end of cinema, but the multiple kinds of ends, um, not just a conclusion to the form, but also a way of thinking about what were cinema's ends in terms of its limits, right? What were and are cinema's ends in terms of its goals, right? There's all sorts of different ways. You can think about the etymology of the word end or ends and what that then and implies for how we approach the discipline in general. Um, so we came up together with a list of uh, dream keynotes. I'm so happy to say that all of them agreed. Um, unfortunately, one of our keynotes did end up sick and couldn't make it, but um, it really was a sort of dream team that we amassed. Um, and with the wonderful help of the C21 graduate fellows, um, and I believe one. Um, uh, one postdoc who was with us at the time too, we uh, we organized the conference. And um, it was a really, really wonderful few days in um, in the late spring of 2018.
2: How could you describe the book uh, not also as a whole compilation of essays, uh, there are nine essays in the book, but also as a, a division of Uh, filmic issues about ends of cinema, about different types of ends. Please, could you tell us a bit more in order to introduce the audience to the book?
1: One of the things that's so interesting about this volume is how it, in a way, uh, partakes of the contingency that is part of photography, the photographic basis of, of cinema in general, because the contingency in the volume is a little different because of its genealogy. So ordinarily, if you were going to sit down and say, oh, let's put together a, a book of essays on ends of cinema, you um, might have a take a slightly different approach. You might think even more systematically about what areas you wanted to cover and make sure you had somebody in each of those. And, and that was a part of what we did. But in inviting people to be plenary speakers, we were inviting them and not asking them to address a particular element of ends of cinema. But we asked each of these really accomplished uh, speakers to address the overall question of ends of cinema from their perspective. So what that means is we didn't know what we were going to get. Some people told us what they would do. And then did something different. Some people told us what they were going to do and did the same thing. And other people said, "Okay, yeah, I'll I'll do that." And so the volume has this delightful aspect of contingency that any photograph has, right? I mean, there are probably many punctums in this in this uh, in this volume. And so part of our job, I think, in editing this and putting it together, and also in in inviting a couple of additional contributions to fill things out was to provide a kind of coherence and a kind of story uh, for the volume as it moves from beginning to end.
2: Well, um, now uh, we can immerse in each of the essays of the book. Uh, We can start uh, with uh, Scale and the Body in Cinema and Beyond, written by Marianne Dawn. Um, please, uh, why it was important to uh, start the book with um, this essay?
0: Well, I think that uh, it was something that we were, really, uh, we, we were really invested in, starting off with these two towering figures in film and media studies, Marianne Don and Francesco Cassetti, um, both of whom really are uh, towering presences in um, the discipline in general. They've both had a um, major, major impact on the field. Uh, so Marianne Doane's piece on scale and the body, uh, I think, calls us to consider the history of scale in the cinema in terms of, um, certainly in terms of the screen and how the screen has expanded at various moments in time from CinemaScope to IMAX, but also how that um, magnitude of the screen relates to the spectator's body. So for her, the ends of cinema are never at the frame line. And by ends here, I mean the spatial ends. Um, Instead, they're where the body meets these spatial ends of cinema. And there is a relationship formed, a relationship that ends up being um, one of scale. We were really lucky to get this piece because um, it will be in her uh, forthcoming book on scale in the cinema. Um, So I'm really, really pleased that we're able to kick off with it. Uh, I think she really calls us to consider therefore how uh, the history and the material history of cinema is always one that involves the spectator's body. Because when we're thinking about scale, we're thinking about what that means in relationship to us. Uh, Perception for her, perception in the cinema is always something that's embodied. We're always looking at the cinema screen in terms of how it relates to our own ends, i.e. our bodily ends. So I think it was a really nice one uh, to kick off with, um, both in terms of um, Marianne Doan's importance, but also in how she reconfigures what the spatial ends of cinema can be by uh, insisting that they must relate to uh, the ends of the spectator's body as well.
1: And what I think is so important about that essay as well uh, no, two things. One, I think it's important in relation to Marianne Doan's career in that uh, the emergence of cinematic time is really, I think, her, her, had been her central work, certainly up until this moment, I mean, among others. And now she has shifted in this uh, chapter, but also in the book it's drawn from, to thinking about spatial questions in relation to scale. But what I really love about the uh, questions of scale here in relation to the body uh, is how it's almost this sort of science fictional account of the body and its relation to screens. So she situates this in relation to the tradition of the sublime in which you have a very small spectator um, who is faced with uh, a very overpowering scene like a scene of mountains or thunderstorm or something in which the human body is diminished And then as we move to cinema, you have a kind of not quite equal relationship because that screen is still a lot bigger than you, but it's not so big. And then we now with our little phones have this thing where we are the giants and that we are holding the world in our hand. And so scale is not only about the scale of the screen, but it allows us in a kind of imaginative way to think about a kind of rescaling human from a very small human in the face of a very powerful world, or a very powerful large cinema screen or IMAX screen, um, then put in conjunction with this human who seems to be like a giant. We're like in Gulliver's Travels or something, where you have you can hold the whole world right in the palm of your hand, and you're huge in relation to it. And both these impulses, I think. Doan does an excellent job of sketching out. So.
2: Well, um, the second uh, essay is a uh, counter genealogy of the movie screen or film's expansion mm-hmm. seen from the past, written by Francesco Cassetti. Um, what could you tell us about uh, this um, fascinating essay?
1: Yeah, I think uh, like uh, Marianne Doan, uh, Francesco Cassetti is uh, really a luminary in the in the field of film studies. And he has been um, thinking through the question of screen now uh, for several years. Uh, This essay is really interesting in that the counter genealogy that Cassetti is uh, sketching out is a genealogy that takes vision and sort of the optical as the primary uh, sense in dealing with cinema screens or all sorts of screens and adds to it and complicates it uh, by thinking about the bodily relation to screens. And so this is where Cassetti's essay and Doan's essay work together so nicely. They are both concerned with screens and both concerned with the sort of embodied materiality of our relationship to screens. And to To sketch this counter-genealogy, what Cassetti does is focuses on the dual meaning of screen, of a screen as something that displays or presents an image to us, and then a screen as something that conceals an image. So we can, in the common, or conceals really the world, or conceals either us from the world, if you put up a screen in a room for privacy, That screen can conceal you behind it, conceal so people can't see you, um, but also can conceal the world from us. Um, And Cassetti talks about uh, Stanley Cavell's description of this in The World Viewed and how uh, the screen is always screening a world to us, but also screening a world from us at the same time. I think this is a really important part of this uh, counter-genealogy that Cassetti sketches out.
0: Yeah, I love the way that um, Cassetti talks about um, the necessary uh, introduction of the term um, environmental. Um, He insists here that cinema is an environmental form, um, and we can understand that by really interrogating the status of the screen as a material object, but also as an environmental object. And therefore, how this experience—what um, for him is—is is really a deeply theoretical um, phenomenological experience. Um, this relationship then between um, spectator and screen is not as simple as just watching the text. It's really about um, the entire environment that is therefore constructed. So, I think his um, piece and Doan's piece together make a really nice um, uh, a really nice counterbalance to the notion that uh, new media and screen proliferation has destroyed cinema. Because for both of them, if we, um, if we consider these other um, environmental factors, for Doan, it's the relationship between the body and scale and how we therefore understand scale in the cinema based on the scale of our own body um, as we're watching, whatever it is that we're watching. And for Cassetti, the notion of the screen as environmental um, material, right, um, both constructing an environment and adding to an environment. If we think about um, the relation, these relationships then, which are material relations and spatial relations, the ends of cinema get a little bit blown out, right? They, they kind of disappear at that point, um, even in the wake of new media, even in the wake of um, the decay of the analog form, because what becomes central then is actually that material relationship more than anything else. So I, I think they both are already at the beginning blowing apart this notion that we can argue for any sort of end of cinema.
2: Um, I would like to uh, read a passage of Cassetti's essay. Um, New screens are terminals of constant data flow, stations from which to retrieve documents from virtual repositories, work tables on which to write, to draw, to calculate, to project, meeting points, to chat with friends, proxies for credit cards, identity papers, boarding passes, These new screens are more explicitly environmental. We can read the new media's environmental vocation as the coming in plain sight of a potential that for most of its life, film kept unrealized. New media screens act as filters, divides, shelters, and camouflage, not only recalling, but also giving real body to the lateral metaphors for the movie screen, and Cassetti concludes, Cinema was one cinema was a one-to-many medium holding the one-to-one address in in the second row new media reversed the ratio where will the final balance be set what do you think about this passage of Cassetti's essay
1: well there's a lot to say about that passage um first that there, there will be no final balances there will be no end of cinema uh, I think that it's a balance that continues to uh, be adjudicated moving forward. But what I think is so interesting about that passage you read, uh, Gustavo, is not only the uh, appeal to the environmental nature of the screen, which uh, Jocelyn has already uh, spoken to, but also the way in which screens allow us to act at a distance. And one of the things that by, you know, making reservations, by telepresence and moving things in other real spaces and so forth. So I think that what Cassetti also emphasizes here is not just what screens show us, but actually what screens do. And while he does argue that contemporary new media screens allow us to do More to interact. Uh, It's no longer the one to many address of cinema. I think what he also shows in this counter genealogy is that screens have always done things to us as these environmental objects. And he traces out these really interesting historical experiments for that.
2: Okay, let's move on to the uh, next essay Cinema, Nature, and Endangerment, written by Jennifer Lynn Peterson opening this uh, part of the book, um, which emphasizes uh, the Anthropocene. Um, what um, what uh, would you uh, highlight about uh, Peterson's essay?
0: Yeah, as you mentioned, Gustavo, um, Peterson's essay really tackles the notion of the Anthropocene and the relationship between cinema and the Anthropocene. Uh, and the way she does this is actually uh, reach back to a moment before we were really thinking about this term, she looks at these three um, particular nature films um, from the 1920s, Nature's Handiwork from 1921, The Four Seasons, also from 1921, and Alaska's Eighth Wonder from around 1925. And these are all from um, the uh, Hugh Hefner Archive at USC. It's this trove of nature films that Peterson's been working on for a while as she considers um. She considers uh, the the environmental cost, but also possibility of cinema history, and in this essay, she's really invested in uh, not just analyzing these short films, but also thinking about how looking at films of nature that has expired, nature that is gone, right, or um, this. Uh, uh animals that have died or potentially even become extinct uh icebergs that have melted considerably since the films were taken how all of this adds up to an archive of loss right it's a, the, these films aren't just important for thinking about um their ideological stance right for thinking about their scientific value they're also an archive of what has been lost and so for peterson looking back at these nature films um offers us a way to mourn, right? To think about, um, to think about all that has been lost in the, uh, over a century, uh, 130 years or so um, since cinema's birth, right? What has all been lost, but also what has been archived and how we can therefore think about archives in the moment of the Anthropocene. Um, you know, by the end of the essay, she actually has a bit of a hopeful thought, which is not something we typically read in um, Anthropocene uh, literature, right? She hopes that by looking at these and by living with this loss and thinking about this kind of melancholic approach to uh, nature films, we might really think about um, a way forward, a way of um, thinking creatively um, that will mean these kinds of losses won't be so endemic. And what functions as the fulcrum of that kind of thinking is cinema itself right, the representation of animals and uh, other forms of nature on screen. So I think it's a really valuable piece, both as um, a staggering bit of archival work, a wonderful bit of film history, but also as a way of thinking through um, film theory in uh, the moment of the Anthropocene.
1: And just briefly, what I really like about this piece is the way in which uh, Peterson's archival work shows how the Technologies for representing nature are directly related to our understanding of the natural world. In other words, there are are ways of understanding the world that become enabled when we are uh, allowed or when uh, technologies make possible uh, seeing them in different ways, like seeing movement, for example. Uh, So cinema allowed us to think of environments in a more dynamic way than landscape photography had at the end of, let's say, the 19th century, where we tended to look at landscapes as these fixed, um, almost static uh, visions that were grounded in landscape painting as their aesthetic model. And when you are now able to represent glaciers collapsing into the sea, for example, as one of the three films does, it lets us recognize how dynamic nature really is. And allows us, I think, to begin uh, the thinking of our relation to nature that uh, we now today think, uh, call the Anthropocene. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to say for it?
2: Um uh how engaged is cinema uh, to the, uh, with this endangerment sensibility according to to your vision according to your view
0: well um I mean I think I think Peterson wants us to think about the endangerment sensibility in terms of um our relationship to earlier films, right? She, she's really concerned, not just with looking at archival films, but also with um, understanding her position as a contemporary scholar and viewer looking back at these films, right? And so by being, uh, by, by taking this kind of meta approach, she is sort of embodying this endangerment sensibility, right? Where, where she's looking now back at objects that um, present to her this kind of, um, this fear of loss, right? It's like you're watching, you're now watching um, films of of, uh, animals that have died, of of landscapes that have completely transformed um, due to human effort. So I think that's really about not just cinema itself, but about um, how we look at film history and how we understand it and how we're supposed to understand it um, once we are looking back.
2: Well, um, we can move on now to the next essay, uh, When Celluloid Looks Back to You, written by Mark Paul Mayer. Um, What uh, could you tell us about this essay?
1: Jocelyn, could we bracket this essay and talk about the Cahill essay first? Okay. Because that pairs.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah.
2: Perfect.
1: Um, The um,
2: fifth essay is What Remains, What Returns. Garbage, Ghosts, and Two Ends of Cinema, written by James Leo Cahill. Um, An amazing essay. Um, uh, I I read it, and it really, really uh, fascinated me, amazed me a lot. So um, why um, uh, do you think it is important to... uh, um, Sorry, I, I I lost again um, I'm going to repeat that uh, question um, the fifth essay is um, what remains what returns garbage ghosts and two ends of cinema written by James Leo Cahill um, what why why is uh, so important uh, this this essay in the book?
1: Well, I think this essay does a number of things that are really valuable for the volume. Uh, I think that one of them is it, in a way, marks a kind of end of a first half of the volume in uh, picking up on some earlier uh, 20th century theorists, um, Krakauer film theorist and media theorists, and then Bataille not normally... George Bataille, not normally known or thought of, I think, as a media theorist, but part of the brilliant gambit of this essay is um, the way in which James places Bataille and Krakauer in dialogue with each other. But in discussing Krakauer's understanding of photography and cinema, um, Cahill does, I think, link us back up to the Cassetti essay where Krakauer also, and his, his salaried masses, uh, figure, but I think what's so interesting as well, well, a couple things. One, uh, James Cahill is a brilliant writer, and so there's no way I think any of us will do justice uh, to the volume. I mean, I laugh at sentences of his. He's just really clever and really funny. And I think one of the interesting things about the contingency of um, a collection of essays that we mentioned earlier is. Uh, the fact that you have a variety of not only intellectual and methodological approaches but a variety of uh literary styles and kale uh his piece stands out, but the argument is really uh, uh <clears throat> excuse me important in thinking about cinema in an environmental sense as producing garbage on the one hand both producing and recording it because because of the contingency of cinema, anything, any garbage that's on the screen when you're filming something will be there and you will be able to see it and it will remain as garbage uh, on the screen. But uh, he's also interested not only in the way uh, cinema becomes physically a form, you know, materially can become garbage, but also the kind of waste that the production of cinema ends up generating. But simultaneously with Krakauer uh, especially, but uh, with Bataille as well, he's interested in the way in which there's a kind of haunting or um, ghosting that happens in cinema when you do, as uh, Jocelyn mentioned Uh, about the Peterson piece. When you see the ghost of this glacier that falls into the sea, that's no longer there. When you see landscapes that haunt you in the film, because in the world in which they were captured, they are no longer there. And I think that combination is really brilliant. Um, He ends the piece uh, with this uh, reading of some uh, films by Momoko Sito, that also I think exemplify what I was suggesting about Peterson's essay, which is we now have technologies that allow us to see um, scenes in the world, in this case, you know, underwater, which uh, we couldn't see with our embodied eyes visually. That the technology allows us to see these worlds. And not only could we not see them, but these are worlds in which, as Cahill says, we have no place. And so technology now allows us to imagine the result of uh, our anthropocenic impact on the earth, which paradoxically, on the one hand, the anthropocene means the impact of humans on the planet, but also implies the possible extinction of humans from the planet because of climate change that is so destructive and dangerous. Uh, to our species. And so these haunting essays uh, or haunting uh, videos at the end that he discusses show these worlds that are uh, eerily uh, have no presence for us.
0: Yeah, I think that I, I love that turn to Sito at the end because I think it's an example of how um, a very close and kind of small textual analysis can become very, very urgent. And this is something that James Leo Cahill is so good at in all of his work. Um, He does this, of course, with Jean Panlevé um, in his book on Panlevé, also published with the University of Minnesota Press. Um, But here, these short videos of like slime molds, right? Which are like kind of wonderfully disgusting um, and beautiful at the same time. um, They uh, then are a microcosm um, of, All of these ideas that he has already been discussing, right? They are um, a way to understand um, Bataille because, well, they're kind of object, right? They're pretty disgusting as so much of Bataille is in wonderful ways. Um, But they also uh, bring to bear the notion of expenditure, right? The notion of the accursed share. They too are about excess in this very, very small and contained form. Um, And I think that's just a really wonderful demonstration of how um, how such a um, a dear and maybe a cliche aspect of film and media studies can be um, reinvigorated with such urgency and such meaning. I, I just love his style.
2: Well, um, one of the names that have been um, frequently mentioned um, throughout the book uh, is Krakauer, Siegfried Krakauer. Um and also uh, Walter Benjamin what what do you think they are recurrently um uh, cited throughout uh, the book
0: Well I mean Benjamin is of course you know kind of the the high priest of film studies so I, I don't think you could think about um you could like look back at the discipline without having an awful lot of reference to Benjamin right like that's just kind of an impossibility um but I think you're right, Gustavo, that it's very interesting that Krakauer keeps popping up, um, who's maybe not quite as popular <laughs> a film theorist. He's such an angry theorist, which is one of the things that I always really like about reading him. He's just so pissed off about everything, um, which I find utterly delightful. Um, but I think that the the reason that he pops up so much is there's there's something about Krakauer that is... Um, becoming more and more resonant in this particular moment. And I wonder if it has something to do with our reckoning with um, the notion of the Anthropocene and with the environmental excess and decay that is part and parcel of filmmaking in general, right? Like, Film and media, they are a product of, um, they're a technological product and they're part of what has been destroying the environment, right? Like we all have to grapple with that as historians and theorists of film and media. You know, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, what is uh, what is my debt to the world in working on this matter that has had some culpability, at least in you know, the absolute shit that we're in now, you know, quite frankly, Uh, it's something that James Leo Cahill is talking about. And when we think about crack hour, you know, we, we always think about his notion of, um, or at least I do, uh, about uh, what film is supposed to do, right? Is it uh, supposed to present some entirely new um, way of seeing? Or is it supposed to be some redemption of the physical reality that we already have in front of us, right? Is film supposed to be like, the great savior, not of us, but of the material world, right? It's going to bring us um, back into the Garden of Eden, but maybe it's not even us. It's about all the things around us. So I think um, I think Krakauer's really pissed off angry approach also has this dimension of potential utopianism that is becoming more and more attractive for theorists working right now. Um, I think that that might be part of why he keeps popping up through here. It's this question of how do we deal with physical reality, right? How do we consider um, the materiality around us and how that relates to uh, film in particular as a kind of technological apparatus of waste, right? How do we think about this thing that like creates so much waste as also the thing that can both preserve, maintain and, um, and uh, rejuvenate the material reality in which we live?
1: And so I would just add to that, that one of the reasons I think Krakauer and Benjamin are so important to us today, I think, well, two reasons. One is that both of them writing really at the beginnings of cinema uh, are seeing the emergence of a new medium and its relation to capitalist means of production and to sort of uh, capitalist social organization as well. And I think that that speaks to us, thinking about cinema's ends at the beginning, as we are at, in a beginning era of a digital uh, sort of formation. Uh, but I think that relationship between uh, cinema and capitalism is really crucial as well, because we are now also perhaps seeing an end of capitalism, or at least beginning to imagine what an end of capitalism might look like. And I think that what I really love about both Krakauer and Benjamin is the way in which they focus on the, um, you might almost call it superficiality of images. Krakauer says in The Mass Ornament that The Mass Ornament reveals the logic of capitalism so clearly because of its surface, that capitalism is all, the way to understand capitalism as uh, a form is not to the kind of in-depth analysis of a particular phenomenon, but actually to see how it affects masses, large bodies of people and things like that. And Benjamin as well, with his interest in distraction, and both of them are interested in distraction, are concerned not with concentration and in-depth reading or something like that, but actually of having to deal with a world that is moving ever quickly and so fast that we can barely grasp and hang on to any of that. And I think that's another reason the two of them, not just in this book, but in film theory, film studies, media studies generally uh, are so crucial. Uh, Benjamin is not only the prophet of uh, film studies, but also I would say of media studies as well. I never begin a media studies class without Benjamin.
2: Great. Now let's move on to the uh, Mark Paul Mayer's essay, When Celluloid Looks Back to You. Tell us a bit about it, please.
0: Yeah, this is, um, this, is, this is one that is quite close to my heart because so much of this piece, as I mentioned before, is really about the beautiful color plates that we're so lucky that University of Minnesota Press agreed to produce for us. Um, I think that it just wouldn't have been the same without them um and mark polmeier is a curator at the i film museum in amsterdam so he's a very accomplished uh, curator um, of one of the most important uh film museums in the world um and what he's done here is talk about again it's about loss right it's about the loss of analog film but it's from a curatorial perspective and i really appreciate that because he has a reverence for these images right um to, and it, it actually is very in keeping with just turning from Benjamin and Crack Hour because in a way he's like restoring a kind of erratic quality to these images um, that are these discarded pieces of celluloid and they're pieces of celluloid that um, are in the archives at the I, I Film Museum so they're pieces that he's actually worked with and actually handled so then we can think about Crack Hour right and the materiality um, of uh, the physical world and how that then relates to what is captured on film. Um, But he's most concerned here, really, with reproducing the images. For him, it's these images of celluloid themselves that tell us more than any of us can even really say about them. It's that uh, relationship between us as as here, museum visitors, as opposed to um, film spectators, right? Because it's important that we're looking at these strips not as running through a projector, but instead completely on their own. And it's about what they can tell us um, when we look at them and how they are also looking back at us. So I, I think that what is so appealing to me about this piece is that it's a celebration um, and a veneration of, uh, of, the, of celluloid as um, in and of itself right? Not the projected film, but the very materiality of the celluloid strip. Um, and it's a very, very beautiful um, curatorial approach that I just, find, um, I just find it kind of wondrous. There's, there's just a lot that I love about
1: that. And it speaks just briefly to, I mean, this is a very different presentation of really part of the same message that one sees in a film like Decasia, which uh, screens all of these old decaying, uh, film loops that have been found uh, and turns them into a film. And here Meyer does this in an academic way, in a scholarly way, by just presenting them in lines like this. You know that I agree with Jocelyn in a way that's really touching.
0: And you know it's it's such a different impulse than Morrison's in Decasia because Morrison's is so obsessed with the ruin. Of celluloid, you know, it's like um it's almost a little bit vulgar, right? It's like um it's like looking at those pictures of um the ruins of Detroit or whatever and all of the kind of political implications that come along with that. Um and so here I think it's important that the um strips are they're not a whole film, but the strips themselves are whole, right? So it's also about um the impulse toward preservation as opposed to a kind of wallowing in the ruin, right? So I think Dacasia is a great, um, a great counterpoint but also it's something different, right? He's doing something different. And I think that comes from the um, curatorial approach, which is very much invested in preservation as opposed to um, the celebration of what has decayed. Um,
1: Absolutely. But who's against a little vulgarity once in a while? So. I love a little
0: vulgarity. Don't get me wrong. I
2: love Bataille. <laughs> well, n- now uh, let's move on to the uh, sixth essay. Um Shut in black and white: The racialized history of cinema violence, written by Caitlin Benson Um Tell us about it, please.
0: Yeah, maybe I'll I'll start with this one, and um, Richard, you can start with uh, Michael's piece next. Um, so Caitlin's piece. Oh, sorry, sorry. This is also um, this this piece by Caitlin Benson Allot uh, also is a part of um, her recently published book, The Excellent: The Stuff of Spectatorship which is about um, uh, all of the all of the kind of stuff that surrounds us as spectators um, in the movie theater, right? From concessions to the possibilities of racialized violence, which we see here. So um, we were also lucky to get this just before uh, a different version of it came out in her really wonderful book that just came out this year. Um, so in this piece, um, Caitlin is considering what it means to think about death at the cinema, right? Not death in the cinema, not death like represented, although there is some aspect of that, right? There's a connection, but death at the cinema. Um, And for those of us, you know, thinking very, very contemporaneously, I think the first thing that we think of as Caitlin also uh, brings up here is uh, the shooting in Aurora, Colorado at the screening of The Dark Knight. But here what she does is trace a um, a larger history of racialized violence at the movies, in particular. Um, so she talks about uh, a, a few examples, such as *The Warriors*, um, and the kinds of fears that there were that um, that there was going there were going to be um, killings and shootings at the movies um, as a result of this film in particular playing. What she does so masterfully here is uh, trace out the moral panic around violence in the movie theater. Um, as a product of um, institutionalized racism right that that's really what's going on here all of these sorts of media panics around um violence at the movies uh, tended to be in these examples that she picks out tended to be around movies that um would be expected to have um, Black or um, Latino or Latina uh, spectatorship, right? That's something that um, that she really points to. However, when the violence is committed by a white man as an Aurora, um, it's assumed uh, by the media that that is then um, the product of somebody who's mentally ill as opposed to somebody who is just like intrinsically violent. So what I love about what she does here is she considers that like cinema does not end at the screen because cinema is also um, deeply connected to larger um, uh, politics and ideologies that filter in, not just in terms of what's represented on screen, but how we envision spectatorship and how we understand exhibition to function. I really appreciate that she shows us even when we think we're encountering some form of escapism at the movies, we're actually never escaping, um, those particular insidious ideologies that filter through every aspect of American history, uh, American culture, um, including, uh, movie exhibition. So it's a, it's a really fine, um, piece that I think shows us how, um, careful film history can be deeply politically urgent deeply.
1: Also, in addition to the films and the sort of, uh, Scares and terrors that uh, that Bensonallet talks about. It's also really illuminating in the that you can think about other versions of this. At least for me, what I really found helpful was the way in which it it illuminated uh, a film that I really love to teach, uh, Natural Born Killers. Um, uh, early Oliver Stone film, which was actually a screenplay, was by uh, Tarantino. But in that film, there was also a panic because it is about these mass murderers, Mickey and Mallory Knox, and glorifying them. And there was a, was a panic at that time as well, which fits right into uh, some of what Caitlin is talking about, where people were uh, talking about banning the film because they were afraid it was going to glorify uh, and encourage young people to go out and become mass murderers. And in fact, the film is very self-conscious about that media environment because there's uh, a number of sort of, it's a very hyper-mediated film and there are a number of media clips in there. And in particular, there's this one little interview with this young man who says, if I was going to be a serial killer, I'd be Mickey and Mallory. And it was just, you know, stone uh, really. And I think Tarantino dramatizing this kind of phenomenon that, uh, that Caitlin uh, really develops in, of course, much greater uh, detail and uh, depth.
2: So. Let's move on now to the seventh essay of this book, Pieces of a Dream, Film Blackness and Black Death, written by, by Michael Boyce Gillespie. Please, could you tell us uh, uh, about it?
1: Yeah, this piece of a dream is a remarkable essay. Um, Michael Gillespie is, uh, a really become one of the, I think, leading voices in uh, Black film studies, uh, growing out of his book, Film Blackness, but equally growing out of his curatorial, academic curatorial persona. Um, Michael is not, I think, while, while his book does scholarship in a traditional sense, I think that uh, he's really a bit of a curator at heart. And so he's been extraordinarily active in bringing um, really uh, fairly obscure black cinema, especially avant-garde pieces, to uh, public attention. And Pieces of a Dream, you can see his curatorial impulse in that he moves from, he basically introduces a series of shorter um, pieces that are pretty much unfamiliar uh, to most uh, film viewers. And for him, I, I think ends of cinema might be ends of white supremacist cinema, Uh, be a way for him to approach this, because what he wants to do is to um, demonstrate, and as his essay does, and as I think as his work uh, as a scholar and, and curator does as well, to demonstrate the way in which Black film is, in addition to being important politically, is as formally and aesthetically complicated as any Bergman or Fellini film or whatever, as any uh, traditional white European mainstream film. Um, Gillespie is uh, just been a crucial figure in getting our attention, turning our attention towards the formal and aesthetic complexity of black cinema. And here, I think what you see uh, is a really prescient essay, partly prescient because of some of the things that pieces he looks at. And I guess I would focus on, um, Mostly on, or or just touch on here, this idea or this um, cinematic, I guess you call it cinematic piece, Everybody Dies. And that film is all about Black Death in the same way, I think, or in a much, I think, more focused way than Caitlin Benson Allett's piece is. And so he there um, takes up these kind of formal experimentation involved in this film. Uh, in a really interesting way, which deals with, uh, among other things, um, a history of murders, racial murders of Black uh, young men in particular. And the other interesting thing about this essay, then, and about his sort of curatorial impulse and his formal impulse is that his writing style is totally unique and distinctive. It's not, I mean, it's not always a traditional academic style. So, um, you know, I would just like read very briefly um, from a piece, a part of this essay, where he talks about um, shit, where where stylistically you can find this uh, experimentation, and now I am missing this essay. Give me one, this passage. I have my finger in it. Oh, okay. You'll have to cut that. So uh, just to give you a taste of his style, um, talking about uh, Ruby D. in this ecstatic experience piece uh, and her monologue, he writes, during D's monologue, Gary's animating hand on the surface, again, engineers the diegesis Beneath. And so the film is a slavery episode of the history of Negro people from 1965. And below it is being written a bunch of terms. The love below, remediation. Again, the animation stipulates process and energy. Trembling, cellular, mitochondrial, animated shape fury, the shape of things to come. Ruby D meets mitosis, her image divides framed by cubes and triangles. She is crowned, scarred, erased. She persists, speckled and haloed, unbowed and sainted, transmogrification, radiation ruling the nation, black matter, two trains running, two freedom circuits, two temporality scripts, and so on. Um, his, His work is not all like that. But it is really a delight and a delight in experimentation. So he demonstrates the formal experimentation of many of the works that he focuses on. I think it's just a, a treasure.
0: Yeah, I think the um, I think the notion of precarity is so essential to this essay um, because Michael is a total stylist. Michael Gillespie is a total stylist in this essay in a way that I really respond to and really love because I think there's often not enough beauty and style in academic writing, and he really embodies it here. But it's not just for the purpose of stylistic interpretation. It's because this entire essay hinges on the precarity of Black life, right? That's how he concludes the essay. And what he's demonstrating in this style that is also breaking apart is a way of coming out all of these films which uh, deal in a multiplicity of genre convention, in a multiplicity of form. Um, therefore, they are also precarious, right? All of these films are precarious in terms of their uh, fluidity between different kinds of forms. So he's embodying um, that approach in all of these films in his own writing so that we have this kind of meta approach where the films and his writing about the films all engage in a kind of precarious approach that therefore gives us greater insight into how film can help us think about the precarity of black life. I think it's a pretty spectacular achievement.
2: Great. Now let's move on to the uh, last two essays. um, The Resilience of the World Cinema and the Persistence of the Media, written by Andre Godreault. Uh, why why is it important to um, why is it important this kind of approach um, to the to this book
0: yeah it's it's a pretty playful and funny essay and andre godreau has um, been really important in terms of uh, silent film in particular right he's a very renowned um, silent film and early film historian Um so he's really taken a very playful approach to the idea of the word cinema here. And when he first showed up for the conference, uh, I, w- I picked him up at the airport and um, he kept asking me how I refer to moving imagery, like what word I use. And I was, you know, trying not to get lost, trying to get this person I had never met to his hotel, you know, and he's like interrogating me. As to what word I use and why I might use that word. And I really didn't understand why he was pushing this so hard, but it's because he was so obsessed with what word um, we use and what that means for how we envision a media object or what that, how that media functions at a particular moment in time. So in this essay, he's taking on the word cinema, Um, And because he is um, a francophone um, person, right, Um, and he speaks both French and English, he's also really interested in the play between uh, those two languages and how they both function. So this is a really playful um, uh, consideration of what the word cinema means. Here, the ends of cinema for André are not, they're not the ends of like a text that we see or of the experience of cinema. It's the ends of the word cinema, and how that has filtered through not only discipline, the discipline in general, but also the industry, right? And can we think about um, streaming, uh, streaming platforms like Netflix and new forms of distribution as equally cinema as earlier kinds of forms? So it's, it's really kind of funny um, and really kind of a little bit out there. One of my favorite parts is when he talks about how when what we now know as SCMS, the Society for Cinema and Media uh, Studies, was founded in 1959, I have to look this up to make sure I get this right, as the Society of Cinematologists, which is just so hilarious, right, like it's so hilarious, I, I really want to be a cinematologist now, because it's just such a hilarious term, Um, but he looks at how this, this term then, this term cinema has had such resilience, and such kind of like funny iterations over time, including um, in the history of our own discipline, when evidently we were once known as cinematologists, which is, it's almost like we're kind of the science, the scientists of cinema, um, and how kind of hilarious that is. So it's it's just like a kind of enjoyable essay, I think, about how um, etymology also has its own ends in terms of how we understand not only what cinema is, but what who we are as cinema scholars.
1: Yeah, and I think this essay just nicely leads into the uh, final essay as well, and especially that moment that Jocelyn just referred to since uh, Amy Villarejo's essay uh, begins with the renaming of uh, cinema studies as cinema and media studies. And so there's a real nice transition there as she moves to pursue this ampersand. What does it mean to add to cinema and media studies?
2: Now, let's move on to the last essay, um, Ampersand Mediation, Television's Partial Visions, written by Amy Villarejo. Um, What could you tell us about uh, this last essay?
1: Yeah, I think this essay uh, follows really nicely upon Godreau's essay. It begins with the idea of cinema and media studies. What does that ampersand mean? The Society for Cinema Studies was renamed some years ago as the Society of Cinema and Media Studies. And so Villarejo wants to uh, interrogate that and, that ampersand. And what I find so interesting about the essay is that for her, it's not media studies that follows the ampersand, it's mediation. And what she means by that is to focus on the action of mediation, not media studies as an object or a field, But and mediation, to think about um, how the concept of mediation is really what brings together the two sides of that ampersand in this major professional organization, cinema and media studies. And she talks uh, about the ampersand both as something that connects things uh, to events, but also as something that creates a kind of community or collectivity. That the ampersand actually has three functions: one of linking, one of changing. That is, the, the what follows the ampersand changes what perceives the ampersand. It doesn't just link it. They don't aren't things that just link together. But furthermore, together they create a kind of collectivity of. Um, being or of, uh, activity that, uh, brings together, uh, cinema, media, and other forms all as part of a larger project.
0: Yeah. What I really love about this essay, I mean, there's a lot that I love about this essay. Uh, Amy Villarejo is, uh, you know, an indomitable thinker. I mean, she is an absolute brilliant, Uh, theorist, but she never, she never takes it too seriously. There's always an element of humor and play in everything that she does. And I just have such utter love for that. And I think you see that here too, um, that she's deeply political, right? She's uh, committed to um, absolute intellectual rigor, but she's also committed to the communal and to, um, to enjoyment, to pleasure, the kind of pleasures that can emerge from uh, writing film theory uh, and media theory and television theory, and from thinking about um, all these things as a community. That I think is also the purpose that the ampersand serves here. It links up different forms of media and allows us um, to consider them beyond uh, strict media um, specific boundaries. Um, And I say that as somebody who really believes in medium specificity, but she provides here, um, I think, really um, generative ways for thinking past those specific borders because those borders are also ends, right? Like when we um, when we uh, when we um, shut off uh, different media objects into their specific categories, that is forcing a kind of end. And the ampersand instead encourages us to open up those boundaries. And I love the way that she. Um, provides for us to think about media and general, not just as um, not just as technological representation, but instead ways of thinking. Right. They're all ways of thinking. And the important thing for her, too, is that they're ways of thinking with others. Right. They're democratic ways of thinking um, and they're communal ways of thinking. So for me, it's just like a wonderful note to end the book on, um, because it's really saying that, the, there are no ends when one is w- willing to consider um, the domains of media as uh, kind of limitless, as linked by ampersands, right? And it, it's really like the limits of how we're willing to work and think together, which I think she suggests um, can be boundless.
1: I mean, also just to add to that, the ampersand, of course, is a paratactic connection that uh, speaks to this kind of democratic impulse as opposed to a hypotactic form of organization that has hierarchy. The ampersand just links things all on the same level. And I think that's one of the really theoretical uh, points of this essay that's so valuable.
2: Definitely. Definitely. I love that about it. It was a, a, an amazing trip uh, through the through the book. Uh, but... Um we've taken now up a lot of your time Dr. Grusin Dr. Paniaqilis um before we end our interview I wonder if you could tell us about uh what research projects you are working on now
0: Sure I'm working on um a new book that hopefully will be done in the next I don't know 8 months let's hope um Uh, It's called uh, Movies Under the Influence and it's a history of substances and film going and uh, as well as how that links up spectatorship and governance.
1: And uh, I think I'm working on trying to map out the kind of end of a long career. And uh, what I've been thinking about at this point uh, is I don't have a major book project at this moment, but what I have been thinking of is and been talking with uh my, our editor at university of minnesota press about putting together a book of essays that i have published over the years about mediation that don't that don't exist in books or if they exist in obscure books published uh, overseas and so i've been thinking about uh in keeping with thinking about ending um in the next, let's say, five years or so, uh, an academic career thinking about what I might uh, assemble that could stand for me anyway, as something of a summation of the work that I've been doing. Um, But I have the luxury of not having to work on another project, I don't have another promotion ahead of me, for example, and things like that. So I admire Jocelyn's work and her uh, tremendous energy as well.
2: Well, that's fascinating. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Grusin, Dr. Sepania Achilles. Thank you so much for talking with us today. All the luck and success for what is coming. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. you.